Hi, World Savers, Priya here. You've probably noticed that it's been a while since the last episode of TV Saves the World. In that time, I've been retooling this podcast as a solo endeavor, a culture, politics, and whatever else I want to ramble out while stoned podcast called Thought Squared. I haven't yet fully rebranded because I'm a little nervous about it. So I'm releasing this pilot to get feedback. There's only like 30 people who listen to this podcast, and I'm sure that you are all on Twitter. So just tweet at me or at TV Saves the World to let me know what you think. And now here it is, Thought Squared. Hello, and welcome to Thought Squared. I'm your host, an epiphany intersecting with humanity as a woman named Priya, who is very, very high. Today on Thought Squared, I'll be discussing the TV show Kevin Can Fuck Himself, the difference between art and content vis-a-vis YouTube influencer Sophia Nygaard, and whether it is possible to ever design a truly stable political system. Thanks for listening. Let's think. everyone. Man, it has been a while. I have had a lot going on this past year. Um, A startup I used to work for went public. I started a new job. I moved back to San Francisco. Uh, All of my old pet rats died, which absolutely sucked, and I got new ones. And now I'm finally ready to release this pilot. Now, if you've been following this podcast, you know that up till now, it's been a joint effort between my friend Elam and myself. But we've had some creative differences, which means that, much like Beyonce, Justin Timberlake, or Carrot Top, I've decided to go solo. No, wait, this is a TV podcast. Sort of. Sorry, I meant much like Xena, Stephen Colbert, or Young Sheldon. I think that covers all of the possibilities here. So what does that mean for you, the listener? Well, as you may have just realized, the jokes will be worse. But to compensate, my ramblings will be much more pretentious. You can expect more episodes like the King Arthur narrative study, which you may recall as the episode in which I fell down a Wikipedia hole researching the evolution of the Arthur mythos. You can also expect me to keep coming for your faves, including Legend of Korra, Schitt's Creek, Bridgerton, Ted Lasso, and more. But most of all, you can expect even more interweaving of media criticism with cultural and political criticism. Partially that's because I am what some have termed a woke leftist SJW sheeple, hashtag cringe. But mostly it's because media, culture, and politics are so tightly intertwined that there's not much point in drawing a distinction. We evaluate all three according to how well they mirror us, even as we change ourselves to mirror them back. This dynamic, writ large across humanity, is rapidly defining our world, and I find that fascinating. So I'm going to change the format up. Every episode is going to have three main segments, a TV show or traditional media segment, a content segment, and a politics segment. 
Also, possibly a weird stoner rambling segment, though I've tried to keep that to a minimum in this episode. There will always be spoilers, although my hope is that the episode will usually be long enough after whatever it's critiquing that it won't matter. Today that show is Kevin Can Fuck Himself on AMC+. I'm pretty excited about reviewing content, too. After all, I spent the last year browsing YouTube just as much as Netflix. I even hear there's this video streaming app called TikTok that the kids are really into, although I don't know why anyone would name their app after a Kesha song. And of course, there's Twitter, my faithful, dramatic companion of the heart. I don't want to imagine how much worse the past two years would have been without it, by which of course I mean all of you. So every episode, I'm going to be highlighting something from non-television media, like a YouTube channel or another podcast or a really great Twitter follow. But don't get too excited, because I am basic enough that my highlights will probably be people you already know about, like today's style subject, YouTube mega-influencer Sophia Nygaard, who I am obsessed with several years after everyone else. Finally, yes, I will be explicitly talking about politics. I know, I know, you're sick to death of politics podcasts. I know that you know that I know, etc., that the world sucks and needs fixing. But I found I can't cope with our descent into fascist oligarchy without indulging myself in the wild and unattainable fantasy of what I'd do to stop it, if I had any real power. So every show, I'm going to be telling you about the latest updates in my ongoing maladaptive daydream in a segment called My Fake Presidency. And finally, let me pause and thank you for still listening to this podcast, even though I have been promising a new episode in, quote, two weeks for the past 10 months. A lot has happened in that time, and it's been nice to have something to look forward to at the end of it all. Now, admittedly, I would still do this podcast even if no one listened to it, but knowing that people do listen and enjoy makes a big difference. So thank you. One more thing. When I say in the intro that I am very, very high, that's not a joke. The proof is that I have failed to maintain a consistent reading voice between the segments of this episode. If you don't like it, feel free to add me on Twitter. Next up, Kevin can fuck himself. we're back with today's TV segment about Kevin can fuck himself. This is it, your official warning. If you don't want to be spoiled on Kevin can fuck himself, read the episode description and skip ahead to the next segment, starting now. Hit pause. Now. Hit it. Pause. You may have heard of Kevin Can Fuck Himself, a sitcom slash drama that streamed this summer on AMC+. It stars Annie Murphy, famous for playing Alexis on Schitt's Creek, as the long-suffering wife of a wacky sitcom character who is intentionally every wacky leading male role in every sitcom. This category includes the show that the titular Kevin is presumed by many to refer to, Kevin Can Wait, which I haven't seen because, quite frankly, I'm too stoned for rigor. You know the type. 
a schlubby guy in his 30s who just doesn't want to grow up, married to an improbably attractive woman who attends to his needs, even though he never seems to meet hers. And sure, she's not always cheerful about it. Sometimes she's snarky, sometimes she's shrewish, but ultimately she just loves him so much that she never really wants to leave. Kevin Can Fuck Himself purports to turn this dynamic on its head, via the simple mechanism of allowing the wife to be actually, existentially angry, and not just angry enough to divorce him, angry enough to kill him. Dun-dun-dun! It's an interesting choice for a sitcom, and Kevin Can Fuck Himself makes a similarly interesting choice in how they depict it, using visual tone to show us the dual realities of husband Kevin's world versus wife Allison's world. Allison, again, is who Annie Murphy plays. Her world is dark and dreary, rivaling the angst of The Sopranos or Breaking Bad. Meanwhile, Kevin's world is bright, cheerful, and zany, with punchlines every few minutes, and of course with Allison as the designated worker who makes it all happen. For example, here's what happens when she asks Kevin if they can celebrate their anniversary with a dinner, rather than with their signature anniversary-rager. Come on! You love the anniversary-rager. You always say, I don't want one! But I know you have the best time putting it together. I do love a plan and phase. That's my girl. Nothing says party like your flowcharts. All right. Let's get this all cleared up, okay? Because dinner's almost ready. Allison copes with this by pinning her hopes on buying a new house in a gated community, imagining herself as an impeccably dressed housewife in a stylish home. She and Kevin have a savings account that they've been contributing to weekly, and she's hoping this will cover a down payment. However, when Kevin's boss gets wind of the anniversary rager, it's Allison who's tasked with throwing a fake dinner party for him. Mr. Harrison is a tiny hiccup. We just got to keep him away from our party. So we're going to have another fancy, boring person party for him in the living room that you get to throw. Get to? You'll distract Harrison with wine and tiny crackers in the living room, and I'll take care of the real party. Okay, but you really think he's not going to notice a party in the next room? We're having our party in the backyard, Allison. Think of the kitchen as a buffer between the two. And you, you're the most important part of the plan. You're the gatekeeper. Like St. Peter, but more judgmental. (laughs) I've always wanted to have the boss over for dinner. It's what people do, right? Great. Then since it's also your party, you get to pick up the supplies. Get to. (laughs) There are some extremely obvious problems with this scheme but they work out when the boss discovers the rager and is delighted. Galvin, I, I never... It was Allison's idea. I never get to be one of the boys. <laughs> Wait, what? Nobody invites me anywhere. People forget that behind the grandeur of regional director of installation, I'm just a man. A man who likes the simple things in life, like shotgunning brewskis with guys who slightly resemble Tom Brady. <laughs> The only person who ends up unhappy is Allison, who at the end of the episode is shocked to learn from neighbor Patty that Kevin has spent all their saved house money. We learn that Kevin basically nagged her into giving him complete control of their finances, and has been lying to her for years about how much money is in the account. Now, I was actually quite excited to get to that part of the episode, because yes, Kevin is clearly a misogynist who's happy to contribute nothing. But in order to get to abuse, we also have to see why Allison never says no. 
Because as I watch this, with just the punchlines executed, the laugh tracks just going, the show doesn't leave much room for him to understand that she's unhappy. And I know from experience that one of the hallmarks of emotional abuse is that the abuser violently shuts down any avenue of expressing unhappiness with them. But given the way this is presented, with an uninterrupted laugh track and plenty of actually funny and lighthearted jokes when Allison isn't around, it's almost as though it's trying to get you to think that the problem isn't abuse, but just a clash of tastes. Kevin's is more childlike, while Allison wants to look and feel more adult, according to the show, is the right way to feel. The problem is, no one is a bad person for not wanting to wear a suit and live in an all-white house, or for wanting to throw a rager instead of having a quiet dinner. That kind of disagreement isn't in and of itself abuse, it's just incompatibility. Now, admittedly, part of emotional abuse is how it wears people down, to the point where they find it easier to just go along, which I think is what they're going for. But in order to see it that way, we also need to see how Kevin perceives his desired tone as depending on keeping Allison's world otherwise bleak. We have to see how he brightly, cheerfully, zanely justifies his control tactics so that we come to dread that shift into his world as much as Allison does. The problem is, the next few episodes actually back away from showing Kevin doing anything of the kind. Like, if you watch the second to fourth episodes of this show casually, and happen to zone out around the first and last five minutes, you wouldn't know that he's ever treated her badly. In fact, you could be within your rights to think that she's the one abusing him. For example, here's the beginning of their exchange from Bill Belichick hoodie day. Because my genuine Bill Belichick sweatshirt cut at the sleeves like a boss and worn to at least two pass games is arriving today! And, uh, how much you pay for a torn hoodie? I cannot and will not put a price on what the greatest coach of all time means to me. Okay, well, what price did the internet put on it? More than our wedding, less than our car. Now, yes, obviously a married person should never spend that kind of money without first consulting their spouse. And at this point, Allison already knows that Kevin spent all their house money, but he doesn't know that she knows. So if I were Allison, the obvious question here would be, if this hoodie costs so much, why wasn't she informed? And how is the weekly savings deposit happening? That establishes, both for the audience and for the characters in that moment, how him buying this hoodie both emotionally and materially harms her. And if I were a writer trying to show Kevin's emotional violence, I'd have him respond with something like, Ah, you and that savings account, why don't you marry it? Laugh track, etc. Something that highlights how he uses the zany tone of his world for gaslighting and dismissiveness. But instead, we get this. Okay, well then, where's my present? That reaction sets up a completely different vibe for this interaction, because suddenly Allison's problem isn't that Kevin is stealing from her, but that he bought something expensive for himself without first thinking of her, which is a classic abuser complaint. And when you combine that with her unrelenting desire for everything that Kevin clearly doesn't want, like calmly sitting at a table to drink beer instead of chucking it on a couch, you start to wonder if maybe Allison's problem isn't that Kevin is a dick. 
maybe it's that she feels that she's holding up her end of white patriarchy, the part where the woman is very responsible and maintains everything even if she doesn't want to, while resenting Kevin for not similarly giving up a life he enjoys for the image of success. And that dynamic, that feeling of, I need to punish this person for being who they are instead of who I think they should be, that is the core of emotional abuse. And that's the problem with the show. It keeps telling us that Kevin is abusing Allison while actually showing us the opposite. Now, to be totally clear, I am not saying that we should see Kevin start hitting Allison or spew slurs. What we should get is a crystal clear depiction of how he prioritizes his ideal reality over Allison's expressed needs, akin to the first episode, but more. But we never see her really express those needs to him, even when she has the chance to. Nor does she express them to us, beyond her longing for external markers of success and quote-unquote adulthood. A great symbol of this is the recurring cockroach motif in the first episode. In those scenes, it's supposed to represent the rot in the relationship becoming unavoidable for Allison. But the metaphor falls apart as soon as her proposed solution to having roaches slash relationship trouble is moving to a gated community. Like, does she think those gates will turn her husband into a totally different person and keep out cockroaches? She knows success isn't magic, right? And if I'm being totally honest, I think the writers know that this is a huge problem, which is why we keep getting those last five minute conversations about Kevin doing things that are actually abusive and harmful. Every single one of those conversations starts with someone going, isn't Kevin harmless? And then Allison recounts something he did that was very much not. For example, take this piece of awfulness from one of those last five minute conversations with Patty. Okay. Patty, do you remember when I got that job as a paralegal? I started working a lot and Kevin convinced everyone I was having an affair. My money was on cult, but yeah. He thought that I had fallen in love with my boss who was 60 and married, but that didn't matter. Kevin still put sugar in his gas tank, ruined his Saturn. Okay, fine. I never said he was a great guy. That's the kind of juvenile crap he does. Patty, he got me fired. Right when I felt like I was worth something. He ruined it. And you just watched him and laughed. Can you just think about that for more than one second? He didn't like something that was my own and so he took it away from me. Like this car. Like my friends. Like any shred of life that is my own. That's so terrible and makes a lot of sense with Kevin's character. So I have to ask, why isn't that the plot of the first few episodes? Why don't we actually see Kevin complain about his wife not being around enough in three-punchline form? Why don't we watch the process of how he decides to, as I'm sure he would put it, teach her boss a lesson? Why don't we watch the conversations he'd have with her to gather intel, where we could see how excited she is about the job while he constantly chooses to dismiss her? Why are we just hearing about it after the fact? Admittedly, this is the episode in which he calls the police to report the car stolen when he knows that Allison has taken it for the day. But the writers even fumble that plot by making it somewhat reasonable for Kevin to be genuinely concerned about her. Because up until the police pull Allison over at the end of the episode, we don't see Kevin trying to control her at all. 
we don't see him argue with her when she says she's taking the car, even though she's previously told us that he constantly insulted her driving in order to have the car to himself. We don't see him complain about her not being there to help out. In fact, he seems quite happy to do everything with his buddies. We don't even see him decide to call the cops. All we see is that he's living his life happily while occasionally trying to get in touch with her. And I can see how a non-abusive person whose spouse doesn't drive much then suddenly takes the car out all day and stops responding to attempts to get in touch with them. I can see how someone might think their spouse had been kidnapped or something, in which case society doesn't give you any choice but to call the cops, especially since Kevin obviously knows that Allison is an attractive white woman with his last name on her ID, does not know she's in possession of illegal drugs, meaning he has every reason to believe that the cops will let her go if it turns out she's fine, which is exactly what happens. It's one of the lowest stakes cop encounters I've ever seen. Even in the episode where Kevin shoots someone, we don't see the shooting itself. We see everything leading up to it. We see the police interviews afterwards, which are obviously meant to get us to think that Kevin was the victim. But we don't see the shooting, the part that is actually unacceptable. Meanwhile, we see Allison doing all sorts of things that, while not incompatible with being abused, seem to add up to a different story. Things like not really being obligated to be at certain places at certain times beyond, uh, I guess I married you, so I have to. She impulsively quits her job, which is income they clearly depend on, without pacing around in circles terrified of his reaction. We watch her have an entire affair without ever really worrying about what would happen to her or Sam if Kevin caught them. And again, I'm not saying any of this is required for abuse to be abuse. There's a reason it's a cliche that abusers are often the last ones the public would suspect. It's important to acknowledge that. Because I think that's exactly why the point of this kind of scripted prestige drama is to really get in there and explore that dynamic, the, the difference between those two sides. And this just doesn't. This is just a fancy way of avoiding that exploration, which is really, really dangerous given the plot, because it introduces that doubt about who is abusing who. As the series goes on, it acknowledges how much of an abuser Allison is. We see how she bullies Patty as well as Sam, her side piece, constantly negotiating their nose and refusing to take responsibility for the increasingly extreme situation she puts them in. She also comes close to incriminating herself several times, simply by needing control so badly that she can't stop talking about her crimes in public places, like restaurants or the public bathrooms at a cop party. Both Patty and Sam call her out on it repeatedly, and interestingly, it's only when the series finally acknowledges her real nature that we start to see abusive behavior from Kevin again, like in this exchange in the last episode. Uh, whoa there. <laughs> Is this fun, Allison, rearing her ugly head? I thought she drowned in that water park eight years ago. <laughs> Babe! Cool it. That is not very Jackie O behavior. Yeah, take a page out of her book and drink alone. You got like an image now? You gotta act like a politician's wife? Don't you have a public image? Uh, yeah. I'm living it right now. I'm a man of the people. <laughs> I know you think you're some everyday hero. But you're just a dick, Kevin. 
everyday hero. I like the sound of that. <laughs> Kevin. That's your campaign slogan. <laughs> Kevin McRoberts. Everyday hero. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Everyday hero. <laughs> See, that is what I'm talking about. That shows us how Kevin values Allison purely in terms of how she fits into his fantasy world, so it retroactively makes more sense that Allison does the same back to him with a diametrically opposed aesthetic. But at no point does the show take seriously the idea that we should look beyond the aesthetic, or at least understand why we're so attached to it. The comparison I find myself reaching for most is Breaking Bad, which deliberately casts Skylar as the epitome of the shrew wife aesthetic, who was also a reasonable person, so that it could deconstruct society's anger toward that type of character, it had a self-awareness and clarity that this lacks. Which in an odd way does make Allison perhaps the best depicted emotional abuser in all of television ever, or at least the closest to my experience in that the real-life abusers I've interacted with do seem to be primarily motivated by the absolute refusal to acknowledge themselves. They often seem to be scared to imagine what it might be like to be someone else, like they're afraid to think through how their desires might be specific to them, rather than objective truth that everyone should live by. What they don't realize, or worse, don't care about, is that refusing to grapple with the complexity of the human condition is also, by definition, forfeiting the ability to accept and trust others. That's why they're so obsessed with control. It also means their morality reduces to power, especially the image of power, or to image and status in general, which in this case manifests in the sense that Allison hates Kevin mostly for embracing an image of low-status life, rather than for how he uses his need to maintain that image to inflict emotional violence. Those aren't the same thing, and it feels very dangerous for the show and marketing to just shrug it off as, well, everyone's an abuser. It would be so easy to avoid these problems. All they'd have to do is make all the Kevin World jokes a little worse, or at least a little more mean-spirited, use the laugh track more sparingly, and let Allison be angrier, or at least less obedient, while she's in Kevin's world. Just like when she calls him a dick in the last episode, but all the time. That would be a much better lead-in to the Dueling Tones conceit, which is otherwise fresh. Oh, also, find a less cliché personality for Kevin, because as is, a lot of the shorthand for him being an abuser seems to come down to genuinely not noticing Allison's emotional state, rather than deliberately ignoring it, which for me treads very close to conflating abusiveness with neurodivergence, all these things that are quote-unquote obviously wrong about Kevin, like his impulsivity and bluntness, are very typical traits of ADHD and autism. Allison's constant despair of him not wanting the quote, right things, or not acting the right way, with zero willingness to grapple with where her idea of right comes from, is exactly how abusers of neurodivergent people justify themselves. And yes, in the real world, that canon does include murder. So Kevin can fuck himself wants to have it too many ways. It seems to genuinely want the fun zany sitcom, so much so that after the first episode, nearly everything we see Kevin do isn't actually bad. It also seems to be determined for Allison to be a victim who's justified in any revenge, which is why the writers give her all these stories of past abuse. 
but by refusing to dive into how these two realities fit together, what it creates is almost like an abusive husband's fantasy justification, in which he actually is the victim. And the fact that we're supposed to be okay with that because of people's general disgust with wacky guy sitcoms is dangerous. It doesn't serve the interests of real-life domestic abuse survivors, nor does it make Allison a true female anti-hero, like Walter White or Tony Soprano, because again, those shows were very clear that their main characters' attitudes were never morally justified. Kevin Can Fuck Himself knows that abuse survivors have a right to be angry, but it has only the faintest understanding of why. The result is that it presents the actual harm that Allison has experienced as indistinguishable from a shallow and inaccurate shorthand for that harm. And that is a huge loss for everybody. By the way, one of my favorite shows of the year so far has been Loki, just like every other self-insert smutfic reader out there. But I'm not ready to give my full thoughts on it yet, so instead I thought I would leave you with my thoughts about Tom Hiddleston and Owen Wilson's last collaboration, the Woody Allen film Midnight in Paris, which, yes, that Woody Allen, do not watch it. Just listen to Tom Hiddleston's American accent in the movie, which I'm about to play for you. Scott Fitzgerald. And who are you, old sport? Gil... The... You have the same names as... As what? You know, Scott Fitzgerald and... Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald, the Fitzgeralds. Isn't she beautiful? Now look, I love you, Tom. I swear I'm a huge fan. It's not your fault that it's so difficult to disguise the natural courtliness of your voice. And, you know, if my natural speech were as buttery smooth as yours, I would also have trouble giving that up just to talk like a guy obsessed with a green light. That's why I'm starting the Let Tom Hiddleston Be British movement. It's simple. All we have to do is continue casting Tom Hiddleston in white, male, American-accented roles, but have him speak with his native British accent. It's a foolproof plan, because once the movie comes out and we all fall in love with his character, we'll all collectively agree to rewrite history and say that that person spoke with a British accent in real life, just like how Hamilton taught us that the Founding Fathers were all great rappers. That way, we can behold the full glory of Tom Hiddleston and not get dragged for being historically inaccurate. Everybody wins. Get on it, Hollywood. And Tom, feel free to call me with any questions on this. Any at all, I am available. We'll be right back talking about Sophia Nygaard. Stay tuned. with today's style segment, in which we will be discussing YouTube influencer Sophia Nygaard, along with her husband and creative partner, Tyler Williams. Now, Sophia and Tyler are far from unknown, except apparently to me, with Sophia's main channel at 9.3 million subscribers and their videos totaling hundreds of millions, if not billions, of views over the years. 
They even turned their wedding into a notably tasteful video, with 20 million views. However, I only recently discovered them while browsing my YouTube recommendations earlier this year, which reflected that I had recently been watching all sorts of cooking videos. So one of the recommendations was entitled, We Tried Extreme Amazon Vegetable Slicers. It was by a channel called Sophia and Tyler, which had only two posted videos total, but seemed to have oddly high view and follower counts for, as I thought, such a new channel. I decided to try it out. And what I encountered was, for me, the most confounding synthesis of art and content that I have ever experienced, so profound that it has permanently altered my YouTubing patterns. Maybe it's just because I'm so squarely in Sophia and Tyler's target demographic of early 30s former smart kid with dramatic flair. Like, maybe this is how racist fuckboys feel about PewDiePie. But to me, that extreme vegetable slicer livestream was a revelation. My previous YouTube usage, while heavy, was not at all influencer or media personality oriented. In general, I found that anything in the lifestyle content as art quadrant, which is of course where all the big influencers live, wasn't particularly compelling to me. I prefer Twitter influencers, who are organized more around the functional needs of here is a good take on the current issues of the day, as opposed to here is a person who I could totally see as my bestie. I've never even had that one Instagram person I'm obsessed with, even when I spent a weird few months trying to be an Instagram influencer. So I never truly understood the appeal of the influencer, until I watched Sophia and Tyler. And early on in the Extreme Vegetable Slicers video, Sophia says that she's excited to use vegetable slicers to make content. And the way she said content was so evocative that I was immediately plunged into a crisis of the soul over the difference between content and art. First off, I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to morally judge anybody. I think everything is art, up to and including status posts and comments. But I also think those things, like live streams and Twitter threads and Tumblr posts and memes and reaction videos, these are all a new kind of art called content. But what is content, and why does it feel like a different thing than art? And yes, I know the US Supreme Court's official stance on this is that you know it when you see it. Why do you know it when you see it? Also, not to freak anyone out, but I'm pretty sure that what I'm making right now is content, so I must be able to define what it is, right? Right? So let me start with a first order definition that I promise you I'm only saying because I'm going to argue with it, because this whole segment is about how I cannot define what content is. Content is an information product that uses the tools of art to create something that outwardly mimics art for a functional purpose. This kind of works, because everything is art. For example, I once collected menus as art, because they are. They're designed to convey whatever emotion the menu approver wants you to get from eating the restaurant's food. Sometimes that feeling is the satisfaction of familiarity, along with underlying messages about the trustworthiness and fidelity to tradition of the restaurant owners. But sometimes the feeling is curiosity, or prestige, or convenience, or fun. This all translates into more specific feelings about what the food will be like beyond what's printed on the menu, what kind of people the other diners are likely to be, 
and even what kinds of special requests are likely to be seen as reasonable. But those secondary feelings are functional. The menu isn't conveying them to make any deeper point, it's just trying to tell you what the restaurant's going to be like. And that functionality is why, technically, menus are content. But this is where it gets tricky. Paintings and sculptures have functions too, and their function is also to evoke a feeling, but not in a way that a menu evokes feelings. After all, the menu is there to sell you stuff, while the painting is there to, well, to be sold by the artist, and if it's good enough, eventually be resold by auction houses as part of money laundering schemes for criminal enterprises. But that's not the point, is it? This is what I keep running into every time I try to nail down the perceptual difference between what art does and doesn't feel weird to call content. Which, I'm going to call the difference between content and art, even though, as I said before, content is art. And now you understand why it took me six months to write this episode. For example, we all know that, say, newspaper articles are content, even though people go to school to learn how to write them and they have a specific style, and journalists work with editors just like creative writers do, and indeed many are creative writers, and will tell you there's an art to writing a good article, just like there's an art to writing a good novel. But even with all of that, there is a qualitative difference between the news articles David Simon wrote as a reporter and The Wire. Maybe because one is made up and the other isn't? But memoirs, for example, are more like The Wire, whether or not they're made up. And plenty of tabloid articles are less than factual, but that doesn't change that they're written as news in a way that, say, The Onion is not. So maybe that's it. The intent is to communicate something, quote, objective versus subjective. But this runs into a lot of problems, too. For example, I'd argue that lots of Western representational paintings and sculptures, like Washington Crossing the Delaware, are objective. In the sense that whatever you think about Washington himself, everyone agrees the point of the painting is to depict him crossing a body of water in a boat in a pose that makes clear that the painting is a metaphor for military triumph. All of that will be obvious to a much larger proportion of viewers than any similarly complex interpretation of, well, pick any abstract art. But both styles are art, just with differing levels of objectivity. Or... Maybe should we reclassify, like, stock old European portraits as content? Hmm. Anyway, if art can be objective, can content be subjective? Well, going back to newspaper articles, think about how often they use euphemisms like controversial to mean this person is actively harmful in a way that appeases someone powerful outside of the public interest. Quote, objective communication often runs into this kind of subjectivity. And while that might spark us to think of today's newspaper articles as being even more like art than we may have initially thought, it doesn't mean that all articles are written in similarly sly ways. Many can be taken at face value, and of course there's widespread agreement that news articles should be able to be taken at face value, which is why everyone is offended by fake news and misleading headlines. Now, I'm sure you're thinking, well, we've all agreed as a society that some things are art and some things aren't, and the distinction doesn't always make sense, especially on an individual level. And yes, you're absolutely right. But for me, that just kicks the question down the road. Like, why does the idea of crafting a newspaper article to hit some specific emotional targets, rather than recounting the, quote, objective facts of a situation, 
feels like it moves along the art axis. I'm tempted to say that the act of designing for some intended emotional state incorporates a different level of self-awareness. That's also the answer to what makes us human, since this feels very similar to the archaeological definition of the existence of art as the proxy for the, quote, higher self-awareness of behaviorally modern humans. But... I also think there's excellent and increasing evidence that both the appreciation of art and the underlying cognitive abilities needed to appreciate it aren't solely human. Think about singing animals like birds and whales, or look at that video of the chimpanzee browsing Instagram or the dog watching Marmaduke. Most of all, check out button training videos like those of Bunny the Talking Dog, who recently used her word buttons to talk about a dream she had. So, where I fall right now is here. First, I think that the difference between content and art is of the same order as the difference between genuineness and performance, or unintentional and intentional, or true versus made up. Which is to say, it involves a specific kind of self-awareness that has agency and purpose, which can sometimes function in a way that brings together these supposedly mutually exclusive categories. Like how sometimes we need fiction to really understand some kinds of emotional truth. Or how sometimes performance is what reveals our genuine selves to us. This self-awareness and purpose is what we mean when we talk about the human condition or what separates us from animals, even though that's probably not technically true. But whatever we call this process slash state of being that complex brains have evolved to create, the categories it comes up with very often are sliders with intermediary values, just as sentences can be partially true or actions partially performative. And the granularity and precision with which we can parse these different variations of meaning is, I think, probably proportional to the average complexity of predictions a species can make. For example, the prediction, I'll finish this on the plane tomorrow. That's a really complex idea when you unpack all the layers of abstraction that go into it. Understanding what a plane is, planning ahead, even having a task that spans multiple days. But we never do finish it on the plane, do we? So we can't fully predict our own behavior, meaning that our cognitive complexity exceeds our ability to understand it. Meaning we can never fully explain certain aspects of ourselves or our society in a way that makes objective sense. Which is why we, meaning I, can't figure out the difference between content and art after thinking about it for months, even though they're concepts that we made up by engaging in them as part of our natural evolved behavior. <laughs> Honestly, this thing where we understand enough to be troubled by how much we don't understand really sucks. Unsubscribe. Anyway, the reason I bring all of this up is that this is the train of thought that I engage in every time I watch Sophia and Tyler art slash content, whether edited or not. Really, I went through this entire exercise while watching the Extreme Vegetable Slicer livestream. I don't know why, and I hate that phrase in criticism because, like, it's my job to know why, but right now it's all that stands between me and another existential breakdown. I don't know why, but something about Sophia and Tyler's videos is so genre-defying to me. It's such purposeful content, such conscientiously acknowledged reality, such 
empathetic influencing that I simply can't figure out whether or not I relate to it as art. It's like the art of not labeling yourself as art. Or if you're familiar with the episode of Community in which Abed tries to classify Nicolas Cage as good or bad, Sophia and Tyler are my Nicolas Cage of the content art dichotomy. This was my religion. I thought the meaning of people was somewhere in here. Then I looked inside Nicolas Cage and I found a secret. People are random and pointless. Well, in my religion, the whole point is that you can't understand every little thing. And, you know, there's a word for people who remind you that you're not God and invite you to try a little harder. Prophets, messiahs, kung fu pandas. So Nicolas Cage is Jesus? Uh, no. But he clearly works in mysterious ways, and maybe that's just his job. In some ways, the content of Sophia and Tyler's videos, both edited and live, are no different than that of any other mainstream lifestyle influencers. Makeup, fashion, unboxing slash trying out products, vlogging their trips, and so forth, all within the standard influencer framework of sharing a fun party acquaintance amount of their lives. But the presentation of all of these is so well done that it's almost as if they're doing performance art as influencers. They so skillfully walk the line between the feel of a friend describing their objective experience to you and a seasoned director making a short documentary. In fact, it's like if those directors made documentaries about the weird topics you love discussing with your friends, but no rich producer wants to be seen paying people to make movies about. Like, I didn't even realize until seeing the Extreme Vegetable Slicer video how many questions I've always had about them. And everything Sophia and Tyler put out is such beautifully, lovingly crafted clickbait. Like if your cool friend spent all her time making meticulously edited videos just for the group chat. And they've hit that tone consistently for years. They even nail it in their live streams. I cannot imagine social media personality production done better than this without tipping over into being not content. And I think that's really incredible, even if it does send me into a spiral of existential anguish. So, now that I have fully explained the motivation for this segment to you, let me highlight some of my favorite videos. First of all, there are the live streams that they do every Tuesday, though I usually watch the video afterwards. These are on their shared channel, Sophia and Tyler, and a surprising amount of fun. I really recommend the one where they play GeoGuessr, which actually caused me to go sign up for a GeoGuessr account, even though as soon as I tried to sign up, it reminded me that I had an old GeoGuessr account that I abandoned years ago because I hated it. But now I pay GeoGuessr money so I can play more! The edited videos are generally posted on Sophia's channel, although sometimes they're also posted to Tyler's channel. Sophia initially became famous for her Bad Science series, which started with her melting lipsticks together. And not just some lipsticks, every lipstick in a store, or every candle in a store, or every bath bomb from Lush, you get the idea. To be honest, while these videos are good and very popular, in my opinion, they don't quite hit the heights of videos like I got my closet professionally organized, or on Tyler's channel, we stayed in a Japanese capsule hotel. In general, my favorite videos are the ones where Sophia gets makeovers, or when she and Tyler test out new products or hacks. For example, if you browse Sophia's channel, you'll see that they try clickbait soap art hacks, or acrylic pour art. And if you scroll down farther, you'll see lots of titles like, I let the Instagram shop tab pick my outfits. I tried wedding dresses throughout history. 
I bought five knockoff tech products from Wish. Or even, and I'm about to go and watch this as soon as I'm done writing this segment, I wore thigh-high Uggs for a week. Thigh-high Uggs! I've always wondered! I mean, the amount of pure living that Sophia and Tyler have been doing all this time so that overly curious and impulsive people like me don't have to. It's incredible! Is this what it feels like to be pandered to? So anyway, that concludes this week's style segment. Check out Sophia and Tyler if you, like me, have been living under a rock for the last several years. They are delightful. Next up, let's get political with my fake presidency. everyone. You're listening to Thought Squared, and this segment is my fake presidency. If you didn't listen to the introduction to this episode, or if you're tripping so hard that you've already forgotten it, my fake presidency is a segment in which I discuss, well, politics. It's not strictly what I would do if I were in Joe Biden's place right now, although that will happen in future episodes. But mostly it'll be about whatever socio-political question I've been pondering while lying on the couch scrolling through Twitter. Today my question is this. We all know that we're living through a once-in-a-generation social crisis right now, comparable to the Civil War or World War II. Hopefully we won't need a war to get out of this one, but it's looking grimmer and grimmer every day. So for my very first question, I want to ask, is it possible to design a system that completely avoids situations like this, given that this is the third such one in American history? Isn't the whole point of democracy and separation of powers and the Constitution that these crises are supposed to be sublimated into the regular change of leadership? By the way, I mentioned the Civil War and World War II, and that's not an accident. World War II happened about 75 years after the end of the Civil War, and we are now about 75 years out from the end of World War II. This interesting coincidence, if indeed it is such, is what spurred me to start reading the book Generations by Strauss and Howe, which aims to understand and predict the American generational cycle. Their most famous prediction, made in 1997, is that we would encounter some kind of existential political crisis around the year 2020, purely by extrapolating the 75-year cycle I mentioned above, and fuck me if they weren't completely correct. Now, I haven't finished the book yet, and I've already noted some reasoning that doesn't seem right to me, and a lot of nuances that have been glossed over, but overall, it's been a pretty interesting read. Back to the question at hand. Our Constitution was famously designed specifically to create a government which makes decisions by forcing all, quote, special factions to have their say, and then reach a compromise in Congress. Obviously, that's now happening so much that the biggest faction is not having its say, which is, of course, the majority of Americans. One, not everyone has equal voting access. Thanks to lack of a national voting rights reform, the winner-takes-all two-party system, gerrymandering, and the Electoral College. 
and that's assuming you're lucky enough not to live in one of the U.S.'s offshore colonies like Puerto Rico or American Samoa, where people pay taxes to the U.S. but don't get a vote. Or in the case of Puerto Rico, electricity. And there's another layer to this problem. Even if we could wave a magic wand and implement that entire progressive wish list, universal mail-in ballots, ranked choice voting, and gerrymandering, abolish the electoral college, make all election days holidays, and so forth, there's still a big problem of who we're voting for. As we all know, the 1% has pretty much completely taken over our entire government. And while people like to talk about that in terms of direct campaign contributions, the problem goes way beyond that. It's not just a question of, this guy gave me money, so I'm going to do what his company tells me to. It's also that the need to court rich donors is by far the biggest constraint in candidate selection for parties. By which I mean, if you have a bunch of candidates who are all basically acceptable to the public, the one most likely to get party support is the one who's best at winding and dining the rich donors. That creates a huge social selection effect, and the culmination of it can be seen in the net wealth of the average congressperson, who is way more likely to be a member of the 1% for this reason. This, by the way, is also why I strenuously resist all those calls to slash congressional salaries, so that they have to, quote, feel what it's like. At this point, most elected representatives have such astronomical wealth and so many connections that it's impossible for them to understand. Even if you froze their assets on election, they just borrow stuff from their buddies under the table. Slashing congressional salaries is only going to tip things further in their favor, just like unpaid internships mean that media and journalism are thoroughly dominated by people with enough family wealth that they can still get by. So, okay. Let's fiat that all parties get a certain amount of public funding, all campaigns get a certain amount of public funding, and no donations of any kind are ever allowed, all PACs are abolished, etc. Is that enough to fix the problem? Would strong campaign finance reform, plus much stronger voting rights, which absolutely do need to happen regardless of the conclusions this segment reaches, would they allow us to buck the generational cycle? Would that be enough for us not to be at each other's throats again in another 80 years? Well, I wish I could say yes, because again, it is absolutely and clearly imperative that those reforms happen. But my feeling is, as soon as government gets to the point where it's actually working for us again, assuming we do get to that point, even that is only going to be an optimal government for, well, about a generation. Maybe two if we're really lucky. After that, complacency will set in. It's hard to imagine now, but it's not hard to see the evidence from the 1950s and also the 1990s, even though that wasn't really our government working so much as the start of the internet plus the fall of the USSR. Nevertheless, it seems clear to me that any prolonged period of peaceful prosperity will inevitably result in a downgrade of government quality, mostly because people will start thinking to themselves, do we really need those guardrails? Everything's been okay for so long now. Can we assume we've solved some of the issues of the past? For example, that's what led to the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act in 1998, and then directly to the Great Recession 10 years later. I mean, hell, you see it right now with how cities have been approaching mask mandates. Democracy is necessary, but maybe not sufficient by itself. I mean, it is also possible for a good-faith majority to just be wrong, thus creating the conditions for crisis. 
even knowledge of the cycle only goes so far, especially if the last turn was when your grandparents were the same age as you now. It's just the natural human urge to push the boundaries, to want more. We're probably not going to get rid of that. The problem, of course, is that those boundary-pushing, guardrail-bursting periods also cause a lot of suffering. And it seems like that has to happen every so often for us to remember where our priorities should lie. It's like, good government is an unstable equilibrium, not just of politics, but of society. So how do we stabilize ourselves without stifling ourselves? Especially given that we don't yet have a working theory of psychohistory, the fictional science of predicting the political future first conceived of by Isaac Asimov in his Foundation series. And no, I haven't watched the show yet. I'm sure I'll get around to it sometime. Also, Isaac Asimov was a sexual assaulter and a dick. Just FYI. The first answer is that we do need something like psychohistory, which might just be regular history. Something that helps us with the long-term perspective, but that's objective enough to be somewhat outside of politics. Not wholly, of course. Like, I'm sure if we did have a theory of psychohistory right now, a totally counterfactual alternative would immediately be invented, driven by whatever political factions felt threatened by the mainstream theory. At the same time, the very fact that I can predict that so confidently seems to point to the possibility of objective analysis. The problem is, how do we translate our long-term perspective into useful short-term actions, especially given that we've spent the past several years well aware of how we're repeating history, and yet we're still doing it? We talk about this a lot in terms of the problems with journalistic framing and disconnect of the media, and how it relates to influencing public sentiment. But how do we sustainably get a better media without going against the spirit of the First Amendment? This, I think, is ultimately where more automated and universal benefits like Medicare for All and UBI come in, as well as recognizing the internet as a national utility and guaranteeing everyone's access to it. And again, obviously, those are urgent moral imperatives that should happen no matter what. My point is, they're also absolutely necessary to allow society the flexibility to organize according to the needs of the moment. How much better off would we be if journalists were able to quit all these famously abusive and conservative newsrooms while still being able to pay their bills? At the very least, we'd probably get news sites that don't use a horse race framing in elections, or that talk about police murders without using the exonerative voice. And that, plus the strong voting and electoral reforms we've already fiated, might be enough to get us to slightly less bad crises. But mostly what we need is to not let power get so concentrated ever again. And I'll admit, I wish I had more of an answer here, because I don't really think there is any way to truly guarantee that. But maybe we can chip away at it. For example, right now a huge part of our power concentration problem is that it takes an act of Congress to raise the minimum wage. What if instead the minimum wage was pegged to productivity, or to the Gini coefficient, relative to 1960, mind you, so it would be at least 25 an hour now? This would be in addition to UBI, specifically because the point is to deny the wealthy the choice of accumulating fortunes at the expense of their employees, because that inevitably leads right back to crisis. That way, the burden of getting a 60-seat majority falls more on those who want to stop equity than on those who want to maintain it. 
We can also do reparations set up as similarly automatically fluctuating payments, maybe pegged to inflation or local cost of living, specifically to ensure that historically marginalized populations are redistributed to. And maybe the length of that unemployment benefits last can be automatically pegged to economic markers so that Congress has a harder time denying them to people on behalf of capital. It's by no means a foolproof plan, but it probably can't hurt. Now, I'm sure a whole bunch of you have spent this entire segment shaking your heads and going, my goodness, this is indeed a fantasy world. And yes, I know, that's why I warned you. But I think this is still a useful exercise because it's urgent for all of us to have a clear idea of what it means to lead and follow in a good faith, democratic, egalitarian, and inclusive society. Not only as a set of laws, but as a vibe. Because one trend that will probably only accelerate is that we keep self-organizing into new social structures, whether startups, fandoms, subreddits, polycules, or even social media bubbles. We need norms that are clear and flexible enough to adapt to any situation. For example, if we generalize from the list here, Strong voting rights and reparations feel akin to the increasing cultural norm of actively combating biases towards the historically marginalized. Enacting strong electoral reform and trying to limit the power of the wealthy can be translated as norms around explicitly recognizing power and being willing to think through the most reasonable limits to set. And the moral need for democracy feels like the equivalent of a norm around responsiveness, which is to say, a presumption that the point of power is to have the resources and willingness to respond materially to the needs of others and to the collective good. And yes, I know there's plenty of room to interpret all of the meaning out of any of those principles. I'm not trying to pretend this can fix everything, or even that it's an exhaustive list. But... I also don't think we can get out of this crisis or implement any of that fantastical wish list of policies without overtly pushing our culture in the direction of being fully aware of what is and isn't egalitarian. And we're definitely trying to get there. The question is whether we can change ourselves enough now that our grandchildren won't have to relive this problem. My hope is that this podcast will, in aggregate, hit all the right cultural nerve endings to help nudge that vision of change further into our collective self-understanding, even when I'm not explicitly talking about it. I don't expect it to succeed, but then, what does? concludes this episode of Thought Squared. I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, so just let me know what you think, and maybe someday soon there'll be another episode. Thanks for listening. I'll leave you with your thoughts.